again. This is Rabbi Jeff Sachs of Atid with another edition of our Jewish Educators Book Club. This time I'm sitting with my friend and colleague, Rabbi Yitzhak Blau, and we're talking about his Fresh Fruit and Vintage Wine, The Ethics and Wisdom of the Agadah, his recently published collection of uh, commentary on Agadot Chazal, uh, published by Ktav. Uh, it's available online at Amazon.com, from Ktav, uh, from ktav.com, ktav.com, and all fine Jewish uh, bookstores. Uh, Yitzi, tell the listener, what is this book? So this is a book that reads uh, over 80 Agadot, all from the Talmud Bavli. And it, it tries to show that our tradition has a tremendous amount of good commentary on this material. It's often assumed, I think, in the world of Yeshivot and in the Jewish community that uh, a lot has been done on the legal portions of the Talmud, where the Agadic portions of the Talmud are often neglected, which has a certain degree of validity to it. But I claim that if one knows, knows where to look, there's uh, a lot of insightful commentary, and commentary that is quite relevant to many of the moral and educational issues of our day. So that's a strong thrust of the book as well, to locate this commentary and to extract the the points and the uh, insights that uh, have to do with uh, the issues of our day. Uh-huh. The, um, the, uh, one of the questions that are going to be interesting to our, to our listeners who are either involved personally or interested generally in Jewish education is how to, the relevance question, how do we make uh, these portions of Agadah or of Midrash relevant to, to students and, and part of what you're doing by making these connections to by ferreting out uh, commentaries that, that do this but it, but looking overall as a genre at, at Agadah this is something you've written about elsewhere in a, in a book that book that I edited that we put out from Atid called Wisdom from All My Teachers what do you think that this whole project of Chazal uh, if we were to put it that way if we were to kind of reduce it to one it's something of a myth to say, well, there's halakha and there's Agadah. Within Agadah, within the, the box that we call Agadah, there are many different uh, genres and agendas. And uh, What is that about? Why does it speak to us? Why should it speak to us? Okay, uh, I'm glad you bring up the relevance question. I just put it in a certain educational context. I know the degree, is, to what degree this is true in, uh, outside of Israel. In Israel, there's a lot of talk about a crisis in the high school Gemara classes. Uh, it's routinely the class that the students vote uh, that they're least interested in. Uh, it seems to be one of the issues is the relevance question, and here I argue that Agadah has a crucial role to play, where issues of Jewish law sometimes it's hard to see where they speak to one's existential concerns. I think they can, but that's a separate topic. Whereas, just to give some examples of Agadah, there's an Agadah about whether it was better or worse for the world to have been created. So. One can certainly go into great lengths of analysis about what that means, but it deals with important questions about optimism and pessimism and the worthwhileness of life. And uh, I, I think that a lot of Agadot deal with basic moral and theological questions that transcend issues of historical context. Um, issues of the balance between arrogance and humility, right? This is something that uh, is a question we could ask 2,000 years ago and we could certainly ask today in the same way. I'll mention some of the difficulties. Uh, uh, Sachs is correct, and certainly uh, you're correct. There's certainly a lot of different types of Agadot. But maybe I'll give one example from the book of an Agadot that seems bizarre and uh, something we couldn't access, and yet I think has relevance. 
certainly there are Agadot that are easier, easier, more easily done. There's an Agadah in the first Tech of Rachot and Davav about demons and discusses how one could see the demonic forces out there. And I think an educator could justifiably look at this Gemara and say, what, am I, what do I do now? Like, how do I talk to uh, 21st century students about the demonic? But there's a line there in the Gemara where it says, I don't remember which Amara, it, we're grateful that we can't see all the demonic forces out there, because if we could, we wouldn't want to leave our door. We'd be too afraid to go out. So Rav Cook is a very beautiful reading, and Rav Cook does something quite clever, I think. He doesn't even address the age-old question about whether demons exist. He's not interested in the debate between Rambam and others about whether they're demonic forces. I personally don't even know what he thought about it. But he says there must be some other kernel of wisdom embedded in that Gemara. And he says what the Gemara is trying to tell us is that we are intellectually curious, and that's a wonderful thing. But there's a, a limitation to that also. Any trait can be taken too far. And to really understand that sometimes ignorance can be bliss. Right? The desire to know everything out there and know everything that could possibly hurt us is potentially dangerous. As, so I'll give you speaking one example. My example for this usually is the what to expect when you're expecting genre. I'm not sure it's helpful for a nervous uh, mother to hear about every potential disease that's out there. Uh, that's interesting because, in other words, if I understand Ruth Cook's point correctly, uh, in other words, it, the association of fields of wisdom with the demonic, uh, I'm, I'm not sure that that's the point. Is that the point that he's trying to make, or that the, there's certain things it's better not to know? Right. Uh, look, it's I not the general, that's the general... Uh, I guess I would narrow it down more. Right? It's not about fields of wisdom. I think Ruth Cook would share our appreciation for uh, overarching intellectual curiosity. I would say it's knowledge of harmful things out there. Right? This desire to know everything that could harm you is something that could ultimately be uh, problematic. Is there a... Um, look, you, you and I have known each other for many, many years, and we've been, we've been sharing uh, books and articles for, for many, many years. Um, so I, I know how very wide-read you are, both in Torah and in general culture, the best of general culture, let's say. Um, and part of what the book is is a, a distillation of everything that you've been reading over the past, uh, I don't want to tell the listeners how long, um, and, and trying to correlate that with with these agadot, uh, either things that have been written specifically on a particular Gemara, or things disconnected that you've made the hekeshim, that you've made the, the connections. So maybe just explain for the for the readers, if you can, a little bit about how the how the mind of Rabbi Blau works in order to put these things together. Now, there's a lot of the sources that you draw on are, uh, are things that I, I've come across, uh, commentaries of, uh, not commentaries per se, but in other words, uh, particularly the material from general literature. You quote here and there, let's say, uh, C.S. Lewis. Um, and, and, uh, and I may have also read that, but I never connected the dots. But then how does that, how does the creative process work? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I can answer, but maybe I'll talk about the kinds of literature I, I, that I use, and then we'll uh, maybe uh, maybe I'll realize the answer as we're uh, speaking uh, the things through here. Uh, I'll start with just the Jewish literature, then move on to the to the broader world of literature. Uh, in terms of the Jewish literature, I basically extract good commentary from three sources. Uh, one is commentaries directly on the Agadah, that's the most obvious source, with some of the classical commentaries such as the Marsha and the Maral and uh, the Ben Ishchais, Ben Yoyada, and Rav Cook's very helpful commentary on Shabbat and Brachot. Uh, that would be one category. The second category is, uh, this is what I think one of my innovations in the book, argued that the 
later authorities, the Achronim on Shas, are more likely to talk about Agadot than the earlier authorities that we've shown him. It's very striking to those of us who Gemara that Tosfot will often skip an Agadic page altogether or address a, nah, a point that doesn't relate to the heart of the Agadah. Just to mention one example, I feel badly doing this to Tosfot, but it's an instructive example. The famous Agadah about Hillel and Babette, where the two fellows will be able to get him angry, Tosfot's one kind. It's a great Gemara. It's about humility and anger and how to address a d- difficult person. And Tosfot's one commentary is, if you'd like to know about the laws of gambling, look in the Sechet Sanhedrin. Right, so it's purely focusing on the halachic points within the story. But uh, when we get to the Achronim, people like the Archonair and the Chetam Sofer and the Terenora, I argue they have more to contribute in this regard. Then the third is the hardest thing to find, because that's the broader world of Jewish literature, including works of philosophy, works of Chassidut. Although with modernity and the world of search engines, it's become easier to find this material. And there I get a lot from Rav Soloveitchik and, and the Rav Hutner and the Meshachachma and Rav Sadov. In terms of the general literature, again, I'm still thinking about the creative process question, but I would say as follows. I think in my mind I'm always looking for things of a moral and religious nature that can cross boundaries. And it seems to me, I'm glad you mentioned Lewis actually, that uh, I think I have an opinion that differs the way many Jews think about this. I think many Orthodox Jews will think that Christian writers are someone who will be more foreign to us, right? They are almost the enemy or the other side, as it were. And I would argue that an intelligent Christian writer is likely to have more to tell us than a militant atheist. Because if you have a mind like Lewis or a mind like Kierkegaard thinking deeply about prayer and, and friendship and the like, it seems to me that since they share many of our core commitments, it's likely that many of their insights will be able to cross boundaries. So I think as I'm reading literature, this kind of literature, to, to me, I'm not thinking in bifurcated terms. I'm thinking about there's this universal concern about what the nature of prayer should be and what are the philosophical and psychological issues regarding prayer. Obviously, I admit there's certain divides, right? I'm reading this literature and it's a long chapter about the nature of Jesus, and clearly I, I don't relate to that to some degree. I mean, but uh, I think some is that to not think of it as divide, to think of it as an integrated whole, and to read the writers confronting the same issues we're confronting with, uh, perennial moral and political and religious questions. Right. Well, Lewis and Kierkegaard are good examples because um, they're polemicists internally. They're, they're interested in educating and, and arguing with their own co-religionists, and they have very little interest in, in debating uh, debating us or trying to convince uh, Jews of the... Uh Correct. Uh, I think you make a sharp point. I, I find the overall majority of their material is quite relevant to us. I just, uh, if I could sneak in one example here with Kierkegaard, I think has tremendous uh, relevance to modernity. Uh, Kierkegaard, already in the 1800s, is complaining about how society wants to make things easier all the time. This is the Industrial Revolution and technology, this tremendous scene where he's for the internet. Uh, yes, right. That's why I find it amazing. Right, the thing, everything is 20 times as true, or 300 times as true. And Kierkegaard has this beautiful scene where he's sitting in a park bench and he says, "All of modern society is directed to making life easier. Someone's job it has to be my job to make it harder." <laughs> now, clearly, it's funny, but he's trying to tell us something which. Right. But it could have been it could have been said by you know someone in Slobodka. Right. Correct. Correct. I think those are the things where the, the transcending divide is easy. There really is no divide. But in reality, the, in other words, the, the weight of the sources on which you're drawing are, are homegrown uh, you know, Jewish sources, uh, both from the classical and the modern uh, Jewish uh, bookshops. The, um, the question of um, methodology in, in, the, in the general world, in the, acad- in the academic Jewish world, uh, there's some discussion about uh, how Midrash and Agadah can and ought be read, what context it can and ought be read. What, what, maybe say a word about 
you know, how you've gone about doing this. Uh. Okay. Uh, I'm also happy you bring up the methodological question. Arguably, it's one of the weaknesses of my book is that I don't present the methodology. It's really just this is what I'm doing. I present the material more than the methodology. I just want to mention a couple of things about that. This is an important question. I think the book would have been helped by discussion of methodology, but I think there are a couple of caveats I would have. Uh, one is talking about methodology comes with certain dangers as well. One could be that uh, someday's methodology becomes more important than the actual process. There's a, a uh, ethical writer named Jeff Stout who once compared writers who talk about our methodology to a speaker who is endlessly clearing his throat. Right, they, they, they put a lot of methodology, but the, the content does not ever come through. Uh, sometimes the other danger of methodology is that it becomes a bit too formulaic, right, that you're supposed to emulate exactly what the teacher does, and you're looking for A, B, C, D every time. I think more importantly than those two points is that it's not true that the only way to learn a method from somebody is to have a class on methodology. I think there have been many influential thinkers and teachers and rabbis in this world where the mode of their influence was that they would get up and talk and there would, would be a certain implicit method to what they were doing. And the students would learn from that implicit method some skills and tools that they could use themselves. So while I would admit perhaps the book should have been more about methodology, I think there, there are ways to extract, as it were, methodology without... Uh, an extensive chapter upon it. Yeah. So it's more it instead of about Correct. it, as they say. Correct. So Correct. Let's, and it's just looking at one particular piece here. I mean, it's interesting how many of the pieces touch on, uh, maybe this is an outgrowth of, of your own uh, proclivities, how many pieces touch on the interpersonal, even the pieces that L'Chorah are dealing with, the Benadam Lamakom, many of them seem to like uh, have this interpersonal element to it as well. And, and the, the topic of humility uh, comes again and again and again and keeps rearing its head whether that says something about the Agadah or something about the author of this particular volume I'm not, uh, not certain but there's this one piece uh, about uh, it's called Order, Compassion and the Moral Society it's in the overall section called Interpersonal Obligations it's on page 95 in the book there's a Gemara in Sanhedrin on, Daf, uh, on 109b on Kuftedam uh, Beis it says the people of Sodom had beds for guests. This is a well-known, uh, whether you know it from uh, from Rashi or you know it just from uh, the little Midrash says or from 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 uh, being in, in first grade yourself once upon a time, the people of Sodom had beds for guests. If the guests were too tall, they were cut down to the size of the bed. The, the guest was cut down to the size of the bed. And if the guests were too short, they were stretched. This is the famous mitat, mitat Sodom. Um, and, and you bring a, an insight from Rav uh, Moshe Avigdor Amiel, who was the Rav Rashi of, of Tel Aviv. He has a collection of drashot called the Drashot El Ami, um, which I think is another one of the interesting, uh, one of the one of the benefits of the book is is to expose readers who might not be aware of the wealth of literature out there. Rav Amiel is not liable to be. Uh, known to every one of the readers that picks up this book, particularly the English-speaking, the English-speaking uh, crowd, and even unfortunately here in Israel, he's probably not as well known as as uh, as he deserves. Uh, so, what are you doing here in this piece, based upon based upon Rav Amiel's teaching? Okay. Uh, before I yeah, discuss that piece, I just want to respond to something you said, which I think points to the interesting tension or balance between these the author's interests and the, where the material leads him. You mentioned a, a focus on interpersonal obligations and humility, and you're absolutely right about both things. 
I think the interpersonal obligations came from my, I brought my interest to the table, as it were. I'm very concerned with ethical issues and thinking deeply about ethics. I wouldn't have said that about humility, I think, just the material led me that way. I thought, just thought there were excellent agadot that touch upon the arrogance and humility axis, and I think there the material led me that way. Um, in terms of the Rami, I think it's a wonderful example of some Midrashim and Agadot that we know since childhood. And a deeper look and a chance at finding some excellent commentary brings us to a much more profound reading of it. I think we were in, when I heard, heard this in first or second grade, it was just an image of cruelty. Right? The people of Stom are cruel because they chop people's legs off or they stretch people out. It certainly works on that level. I'm not critical. That's probably the way I would teach it in first or second grade also. I think one can ask when one's a bit older that you know there are a lot of potential images of cruelty out there. Unfortunately, there, there's no shortage in humanity for images of cruelty. And maybe there's some reason for this particular image. And Rav Amiel, uh, who was the Rav Rashi in Belgium before Tel Aviv, as, as you mentioned, so his reading, I think it's the wonderful reading, he says that some societies have charitable organizations for different kinds of reasons. One could have charitable organizations out of a spirit of benevolence, a genuine desire to help the poor and the needy. One could have charitable organizations out of more of almost a bureaucratic or an aesthetic desire for order. Meaning society should be a smooth running machine. It should function well. It doesn't function well if there are homeless people hanging outside or if there are poor people. So it's the kind of the bureaucratic approach to charity. And Rav Amiel says, what's the test case of whether it's a genuine morality or a bureaucracy? What happens when the resources you set aside do not fit the needs that emerge? So Rav Amiel says, it's clear that if you're interested in benevolence, so if you don't have enough resources, you have to figure out how you're going to expand your resources. But if you think about it from the bureaucratic perspective, the only thing that matters is you could put a check in both boxes. You can make the numbers in each column equal each other. So from that perspective, if the uh, resources don't meet the needs, so you'll make the needs fit the resources, as long as the bureaucrat can check, stamp his piece of paper and pass it along. And he says, uh, I think it's a wonderful reading of the Gemara, that Stone had a society of uh, bureaucrats or order or aesthetics, whichever one will, will say it, and they set aside these guests, these beds for hospitality. But if the guests didn't meet them, the beds, they had to make them meet it. And then there's really a chilling passage, because really, Rav Amiel, I, I, you know, I double-check when this is written, now it's skipping me, but it's either in the 20s or the 30s, I think early 30s. Rav Amiel says, we look around and we see that uh, those nations that are most excellent in order are the most cruel. Right? And obviously, he's thinking about fascism, right? Mussolini making the trains run in time, and the rise of Nazi Germany, and it's a very, very powerful passage. Just to go back to something you mentioned earlier, do you have a sense of why... Uh, we discussed this uh, earlier, uh, why the Achronim uh, seem to be more interested in spelling out commentary on the Agadah as opposed to the Rishonim? Uh, it's very appropriate that you ask that because I'm actually supposed to speak at a conference about this topic in two weeks and I, I am still in the process of working it out. But let me just throw a few things out there. I, I actually changed my position a bit over the last month of doing research. I initially said it more that um, the Rishonim are not, uh, they skip this material. And I think there's some excellent examples of that. And now I say it a bit differently. It's not, it's a little bit overstated or overgeneralized to say they skip the material, but they deal with the material but often with other issues not the kind of issues that I'm addressing. For example, I mentioned the possibility of Tosfot bringing halakhic issues. We know that Tosfot's methodology in Shas is try to resolve contradictions. So Tosfot will do that also. Let's say there's one Gemara that says everything is in the hands of heaven except fear of heaven. 
and another Gemara that says everything is in the hands of heaven except hot and cold, sinim upachim. So Tosha says, well, there's a contradiction there. But they're not interested in the theological question of free will and determinism per se. Right? They're just interested in resolving the contradiction. Uh, some other examples of that... And certainly Rishonim are not uh, doing the kind of, um, pardon the expression, literary analysis of Agadah, which we'll sometimes see in, in particularly later and Correct. contemporary... Uh, Correct. Um, I think also what, uh, when, uh, another thing one gets in Rishonim is a... Uh, a more narrow approach to Agadah is in which one's trying to resolve Agadah with one's world of view. I think both the philosophers and the capitalists engage in this, where the philosophers think there's no such thing as demons or angels or whatever the case may be, and then every Gemara that has that has to be resolved. It's very interesting if one looks at a Rishonaman, certain Rishonaman Shas, they'll only speak about Agadah, it's just God putting on Tzot. I mean, you need a problem first before there's a response. They're not trying to read the Agadah per se and look for guidance. I think to some degree with capitalists there's something similar. I don't know if I have a full answer, but I'll just throw two things out there. I think a transition point, I didn't point this out actually, a fellow named Chaim Eisen actually pointed this, out, pointed this out in an article in Chakira. Something seemed to happen in the 1500s. Because in the 1500s we have the following three figures, Maharsha, Maharal, arguably the two most popular commentaries in the Yagadah, and Rav Yaakov Ibn Chabib, who, com- who collected the commentaries in the Yagadah. So I have, to, I have to give him credit, and I'm not sure if historians have worked out why this is yet, but some of this seems to be a turn to the Yagadah in the 1500s. Just to throw in two more factors. One fact that might just be the desire of the Akronim to make an impact. Uh, and I think in a good way, I don't mean in an egotistical way, that you want to write in a literature that hasn't been dealt with yet, hasn't been mined yet. I have a parallel to this, which I think I can prove. This I can prove. This is speculation. Many of the same Akronim wrote on Mesefto that are not the classic Mesefto. Right? The Arconair writes on Kritod and Yavamod and Makod, and the Sfat Emet writes on Kachim and Chagiga. There was more room to be creative. Correct. So maybe, uh, I haven't, the problem is I have, a lot of, I have a lot of sources to prove this for their commentaries on culture. They say it black and white. I haven't seen any of them say it yet regarding Agatha. So that's a bit speculative. Uh, I think there also might be um, a shift in some of the issues, the, almost the Jewish thought issues of the day. That while, perhaps, this is also speculation, I have to admit, but maybe while people, uh, the big arguments about the nature of philosophy, the nature of Kabbalah, so that tends to dominate the conversation. And maybe in modernity, kind of, those issues have been left aside, and maybe in a good way, there's a way to just encounter the Agadah and just look for insight that way. The, the, the dichotomy between Halakha and Agadah, this kind of, uh, you know, Berlin Wall that separates them, um, so that when a teacher, let's say, making his way through the Gemara, encounters an Agadah, he's either going to skip it, which I think that teachers less and less uh, do. I mean, this notion that, you know, uh, that you hear about, you know, the, the Rebbeim of uh, once upon a time who, you know, would just naturally skip over an Agadah. Um, or even I re- recall, uh, I recall a particular uh, Rebbe that I had who would not skip the Agadot, but he would read through them in a kind of Dafyomi-ish style, and if he had a little vort to say, he would he would say it. But it was clear that it was just a uh, intermezzo between uh, halacha and halacha. Uh, but because he felt something about not skipping anything, he felt there was a value not to skip anything, um, as opposed to a teacher that's going to, you know, step out and say, okay, here the Agadah presents us with the following topic about interpersonal relationships or something about, uh, you know, who knows, whatever, whatever array of issues is on the, on the teacher's agenda to, to address. Uh, and a teacher, at the beginning of the year, has uh, 
a dozen issues that he wants to address at some point. And, you know, sometimes the students are, you know, are tricked into thinking that they, the student, have, have uh, gotten the teacher off track because the teacher talked about this, that, or the other thing, um, when in fact that was uh, a planned aside. Um, uh, what do you think about the, the, um, the, the, the connection between the two? Between, you know, is, the, is there a natural connection? Can we read the Agadah? Should we read the Agadah in light of the Halakha and, if possible, vice versa? And how might this play itself out in a classroom? Uh, I'm certainly sympathetic to your point that uh, the sharp divide, the Berlin Wall, as you aptly put it, between Halakha and Agadah doesn't exist. I think it doesn't exist on several levels. One is that sometimes there are legal details embedded in the story, and despite the rule that we don't derive halakha from Agadah, nevertheless, this rule gets broken frequently, where you see a halakhic detail in the story. The flip side of that, of course, is that it's not true that halakha is just dry technicalities, right? but they also reflect the worldview, and I think the, the best teacher will also discuss those issues within the halakhic sugya. Beyond that, as you also allude to, Agadic Sugis are placed in the context for a reason. And it's interesting to think about looking for meaning, either in the chapters placed in the Halakhic Sugya that appeared directly before it. And I admit I'm not always successful at this, but I think it's certainly a question worth asking. And a few very telling examples. This is not my example. I believe Jeff Rubenstein came up with it. But uh, the famous Tanur Shachinai story in Bab Metziah, where the, uh, Rabbi, well, I think in many ways we teach this more often is that Rabbi Lezer is the, the bad guy, as it were. He tries to undermine the halakhic process by bringing miracles, and at the end of the day, he has to be excommunicated. Uh, many of the scholars, I think Rubenstein among them, point out that the context of the Gemara is in a Gemara about onat varim, about wronging somebody through words, kind of a, a verbal assault. And indeed, in the continuation of the Gemara, somehow Rabbi Lezer's prayers causes the demise of Rabbi Gamaliel. And the Gemara says that all the gates are locked except for the gates of onah, that that had, could have more impact in heaven. So I think, given the conclusion of the Gemara and given the halakhic context, the changes you're reading about Gadda, it's not as simple anymore who's right and wrong in the story. It could be it's a much more subtle and complex story at that point. So for the, for the teacher, uh, who has to tomorrow morning get up and go in and, and teach a Gemara? So the book, is a, the book is a great resource. I mean, I mentioned to you the other day that I happen to right now be teaching second uh, 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 sukkah. On Daf there's an unusual piece of Agadah, and I'm kind of stuck trying to figure out how am I going to make sense of this because it's it's really something that um, is, is poses a difficulty. You know, there's a certain Agadot where you read them, you don't understand them. Okay, so the things in the world you don't understand. But here, if you you know just read the pshat of the Gemara about what Rabbi Nachman is doing to this poor old woman whose property has been stolen, uh, it really makes Chazal out into a very very bad light, and we work from the conviction that. There has to be another way to understand it, but where do you turn? So I, I look at the index of the book, and lo and behold, uh, not only do you have your own commentary on it, but you, you, you know, let me know that there are other things out there, there are places to look that I might not have found on my own. But beyond, you know, the how many, uh, you know, agadot that you've covered in this book, it could be that you hadn't touched upon the, uh, you hadn't touched upon the Gemara that I have to teach tomorrow morning, and until we until the second volume comes out, uh, what's a teacher to do? What advice do we have for, you know, for a teacher besides sleep less and read more? <laughs> Look, that's an excellent question. I would say beyond what I do in the book, uh, A, I'm trying, I'm hoping to inspire other, others to help in this effort also. Mm-hmm. There'd be other 
to go out there, there are plenty of talented educators out there, thank God, who could contribute towards this endeavor. And it seems to me this would be a responsibility of, uh, let's say, Yeshiva High School uh, Talmud staff. Like, just like over the summer, someone might, uh, and I worked in a very organized uh, high school in Yeshiva Flapesh for four years. So we would always get a book at the beginning of the year with, uh, you know, questions on each Gemara and possible sources for enrichment. So it seems to me that should be part of the collaborative effort that should include Agadot as well. It's true, I think uh, what you're saying is correct, that it's difficult for the teacher who's very busy the night before to find an excellent commentary on the difficult Agadah. But this should be part of an ongoing communal concern. It's the first thing I would say. I also hope that my book maybe gives somewhat of a window into where to look. That's what I might say. I know that from my blog that Rav Tzadok and the Meshach Achma deal with a lot of Agadot. And they both have indices. It's at that point a half hour of checking or one could check with the DBS computer program where Rav Tzadok's writings are there. You check with actually a, a good deal of cost to do it in Machshavah's firm there. Right. So I certainly don't guarantee a 100% finding rate, but should be easier in our day to, uh, to collectively find relevant material. Well, then you still have to do the heavy lifting of making sense of it and trying right. to understand right. how to present it, but, you know, that's, after all, why you went into teaching. Okay. Anything else you think that we ought to know about this? Uh, if I could just close with one pedagogic point, which I think is quite important. Uh, I think many of us in various school settings want to give over a certain messages to our students and feel often that if we preach to them, it will be unsuccessful. One of the beauties, I think, of literary interpretation is that if one asks them to interpret a story, they'll often say the very idea you wanted to tell them, and but it'll come from that. It'll come from their reading of the story, and there'll be no sense that it's preaching. I think it's a, in that sense, I think there's a certain very sh- sharp uh, pedagogic point to why the Agadot could be particularly important for many of the themes we'd like to get across to our students. Okay. The book is Fresh Fruit and Vintage Wine, The Ethics and Wisdom of the Agadah by Rabbi Yitzhak Blau. Published by Ketav, available, available. And, and, and by the way, I just want to mention that the OU and Haratzion are co-publishers. That's correct, the OU Press and Yeshiva Haratzion. Now, I, we should also mention that, that many, if not most, of the pieces originated in your uh, online course for the virtual for the virtual Beit Midrash, and I might as well add that Rabbi Blau is a faculty member of our webyeshiva.org. You can visit the Web Yeshiva blog to read some of his other writings about Agadot, about uh, contemporary Jewish thought, about an array of things, or to participate in his live, fully interactive online, online uh, shiurim at webyeshiva.org. Rabbi Blau, we look forward to the next volume, and we will be back in a few weeks with another edition of our Jewish Educators Book Club.